0: You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I uh, thought I was going to open. No, no, you can <laughs> you can introduce to our guest Diego. Diego, did, okay. did did you bring any alfajores for us?
2: No, uh, next time. No. I'm
1: sorry, guys. I'm so disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> An Argentinian in here. They don't even bring you alfajores. Okay,
2: Ross was trying to make him feel at home by cooking steak and totally stunk up the house. Thank you, Ross. Yeah, I said
1: chow pibé. That was that was good enough. A good start. I've exhausted all of my <laughs> all of my regional knowledge now.
0: <laughs> so, I can't um, think past the smell.
1: You can't think. Oh yeah, I cooked that steak. It really. <sighs> it wasn't regenerative either. So, um, I cut you off in your intro, but sorry, world.
0: <laughs> for all the people who are listening to this banter, we're in Oakland for a big conference and we're sharing a home right now. And Ross cooked steak,
1: roomies. Yeah. yeah, I think I kind of burned it too. Anyways, why don't you uh introduce our guest?
0: Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, this is Alex that I get from Nori. I'm here with Christoph as well, Christoph Jospe from Nori, and sitting across from me is Diego Suiskid
3: size skill size yes there we go enough. you just told me
0: <laughs> from pachama welcome
1: thank you so much for having me we've uh, been trying to do this for a while um, yeah and we finally finally snared you although you had to drive a very long time to get here so we got to make it worth it guys <laughs> this better be good
3: i'm very excited big fan of the podcast oh,
1: thank of i'm you feeling guys. a lot of build-up Yeah, We just need to keep going. We do, we do, we do. (laughs) The momentum is slipping. Uh, Yeah, it's been a while since we've done uh, three uh, hosts here. Yeah, so Diego, why don't you start us off and save us from ourselves and explain a little bit about what Pachama is.
3: Sure. Pachama, we are trying to unlock the full potential that forests have as a solution for climate change. You might have read the numbers of the potential that reforestation has as a source of carbon capture, but also the forests that we have standing today have an enormous potential to continue capturing carbon, which they have been doing for billions of years. And it kind of drives me crazy that not only we are not reforesting at scale, which is such an easy solution, but we're actually destroying these forests that we have around the planet, like the Amazon rainforest, which is very dear to me because I grew up in Argentina, in the north of Argentina, the last tip of the Amazon ecosystem. And you might have seen the news, we are deforesting at scale. So what we're trying to build is first a set of tools to measure and monitor how much carbon a forest captures. Today, we have high-definition satellite images. We have LiDAR devices that can be put into drones or airplanes to take three-dimensional images of a forest. And we have machine learning algorithms that can analyze that data with a high degree of precision. So we're building those tools to make it very transparent and accessible to know exactly how much carbon a forest is capturing. And then with that, help uh, validate carbon offset projects that then can be accessed by carbon buyers in the market.
0: So you mentioned a term here. Um, Let's define. What is LiDAR?
3: LiDAR is... A device that effectively shoots a laser towards an environment and then gets the laser back. And with that, can construct a three dimensional image of any environment. This is what's used on self driving cars. You might have seen the Google cars driving around here. They are effectively, you know, scanning their surroundings with LiDAR. And as a result of self driving cars, the devices have become cheaper, smaller, uh, Moore's law for LiDAR. And that technology can be used to scan a forest and you obtain these beautiful three-dimensional images of a forest that then you can use to know how much biomass is there on a forest and therefore how much carbon.
2: So basically what it stands for is light detection and ranging, right? There you and, go. And what you're doing is shooting out a photon exactly. and then getting back that transmission and somehow that transmission can tell you some degree of biomass that Create some amount of reading into the total amount of carbon that's stored. Is that exactly? That's right.
3: Yeah. So, and then the cool thing. This is something that's been around for a long time. Started with military uh, usage, you know. Then you know, move on to again, self-driving cars, and in forestry, it's been used for some years. But what's really revolutionary is that now we have deep learning, computer vision, that basically can estimate without you teaching the algorithm what is a tree, you can obtain these incredibly precise measurements of how much biomass and how much carbon is there in a forest. Above ground, of course, you know, it cannot go down to the roots yet, but it gives you an incredibly precise read of uh, the carbon stock of a forest. We demonstrated that with our models, we can achieve less than 1.5% error with 97% confidence at estimating carbon storage, comparing the results of our models with ground truth of the US Forest Service sending people to measure trees with tapes. Uh, so that's the power of these algorithms. Now what we need to do is expand the model to the rest of the world uh, because we train these algorithms in the US where we have really good data and now we're obtaining data of South America and other parts of the world.
0: That is incredible. We said 1.5%. Yeah. Yeah with soil, it's much more complicated. Mm, Yeah, And so you mentioned uh, your model, you mentioned uh, machine learning. So I'm assuming that within the US and forest, you take into account regions and the different type of vegetation and biomass that you would see there. So um, because you're looking from above ground, and you're doing this LIDAR, there might be a higher canopy of trees. And then what happens below that? Is that taken into account?
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, definitely in the Amazon becomes more complicated than in a temperate forest of New England, for example, Mm -hmm. because you have this multi-layered canopies uh, on a rainforest like that. But still, you can be really good. Again, what the deep learning algorithm model does is that it is training all the time with ground truth, right? And it's teaching itself, you know, this shape contains this amount of carbon and then starts to you know, apply this to other areas in which it doesn't have ground truth and it's good at predicting it. And then we can apply those algorithms to satellite and in satellite, you know, it identifies basically pixel by pixel and it can predict with that precision, the carbon storage of a forest.
2: So sometimes I hear machine learning and I'm like, oh,
3: I roll. This person's just in Silicon Valley trying to raise
2: and use machine <laughs> learning or blockchain. No, like you're going to get.
1: That's general artificial intelligence. That's the, <laughs> the real distant one.
2: I mean yeah, sure. AI, ML.
1: (laughs)
0: It's kind of the They're two different things and that's why people roll their eyes. uh
1: Uh-huh. It's like people say that uh, machine learning is written in Python and artificial intelligence is written in PowerPoint.
3: (laughs) 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 There are lots of fun memes around. But just to
2: break break this down for the layman a little bit, because I think what you're doing is really cool and it's not it's not jargon, it is real. And actually Mm. you've calibrated the model through ground truthing so that these machines can learn on top of each other and then run in other places where you don't need to calibrate it, right? Yeah. And then you've got some kind of algorithm that just works. Why should we trust you that the algorithm works?
1: Yeah, Diego. Yeah, what
3: are you absolutely, say about because that? It's, it is kind of uh, a black box. You know, uh, you know the Google engineers who develop the program that won Go don't know how it works. That's the thing about this. You know, kind of like the scary or spooky thing about deep learning. We don't know how how it works, uh, or how it trains itself. We use convolutional neural networks, which is a particular deep learning technique that basically yes, yeah, can the voxel space of a three-dimensional cloud of points, and from there again, identify the shapes and volumes and then, again, teaches itself by comparing to ground truth. The reason you had to trust us is because the results are there when we compare our, you know, models with measurements taken by foresters going to the ground, measuring the halometric, you know, equations of a tree and, you know, effectively measuring you know, the, the biomass of a tree in traditional ways. Uh, so the model works because the data tells it. And then it just becomes, you know, how do you expand it? How do you keep it up to date and so forth?
1: How is forestry uh, measured right now in terms of either the carbon markets or just in general, <clears throat> in particular in, in South America? And then mm-hmm. what, what do you change about it? I guess where Pachama is, is a suite of tools that people can use to verify certain outcomes that are happening within forestry.
3: Yeah. So, okay. So we started, again, from the mission of unlocking forest as a solution to climate change. Then we realized, okay, the problem today is that we're not funding reforestation and forest conservation. When we look at why, we saw that even though carbon markets have an enormous potential, even though Article 5 of the Paris Agreement focused specifically on forest as a solution for climate change and using carbon markets to drive capital there, there is not that much carbon money going to, carbon markets money going to forest. And when we ask why, we look that today, if you want to certify a forest project to obtain carbon credits, it requires sending foresters to the ground, taking samples of plots in a large portion of a forest. And with that, doing a carbon stock assessment that then needs to be re-evalued every a couple of years. Sounds expensive. And it costs between $100,000 and $400,000, depending on the size of the forest. So as a result of that, there are only 45 projects in North America. All of them are at least 1,000 hectares because smaller wouldn't make economic sense. And in South America, there are less projects and there are at least 10,000 hectares.
0: That's the same problem that we're having with Nori with uh, agriculture. Mm -hmm. So that we're trying to solve the issue of allowing more farmers to participate in a carbon market because what has stopped them is that it's so expensive for them to get their project verified. And so you're limited to large projects, people who own and operate over, you know, 50,000 acres. And so what does that do? It leaves out a whole segment of people who could be participating in sequestering carbon.
3: Exactly. Yes. So... Small landowners are definitely a part of the solution when it comes to nature-based, land-based carbon projects for climate change. So that's that's one of the problems we identify. And then we say, okay, well, let's start building this, this technology, and then we see how we apply it. We got all this progress on the ability to measure and monitor forest. And what we're doing today is we are going to projects that already received carbon credit certificates following the traditional protocols, American Carbon Registry VCS, Climate Action Reserve, Gold Standard. And what we're doing is we are going to this project developer saying, hey, we can validate your claims to give you more credibility, to give more transparency and visibility to your project. And then with that, we we can help you increase the chance of selling those carbon credits in voluntary markets. And... That's what we're doing. So we partner with several project developers in North America and in South America.
1: Be- because of the, they can't move these credits because people don't know if they can trust them. And well, you're, you're adding trust to the system. Or, or, or are you reducing the transaction costs of what they're already incurring?
3: Both. So because the other thing that we learned as we went into researching this market is that there were many buyers on voluntary markets that love the idea of forests because, yeah, it's, it's great. You're planting trees, you're protecting ecosystems, and so forth and so on. But they didn't trust them. they were like, "Oh, there are all these articles that we read on the news about uh lack of integrity on the calculation of uh, of a forest. There is this problem of permanence, there is a problem of you know uh, illegal logging, so we, we'd rather stay away and we go to something that's easier to measure, like for example, methane burning or you know solar panels, which are important things, but you know again, forest to me is like incredibly important, incredibly scalable, and have a lot of benefits I can continue preaching for." Um, and yet, so they, they were staying away for lack of trust, and we think that by building those tools, by showing, you know, that the projects are doing things correctly, that the, that the projects are calculated correctly, and that you can monitor them over time, then they gain credibility, and that's what we're doing. And we are then reaching out to companies that are already purchasing carbon offsets or are interested in or you know accessing carbon offsets in the market, and we're presenting these validated by remote sensing technologies forest projects in the future we hope to you know extend the usage of our tools for you know the beginning of a project in the verification and the issuance of the credits
1: that's great it sounds like a a useful service do you generally like the design of how forestry has been set up in carbon markets so far do you think anything needs to be changed in the design of red or red plus or other assets
3: yeah, we, we have a lot of ideas of things that should be better. I mean, we think that everything that's been done so far is really important. And everyone... is you chose in your market... words wisely, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I told you, English is not my first language, so <laughs> no, I to okay. have a limited dictionary. Blame it on that, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that you know everyone who's been working on forest carbon uh, since the beginning of this idea have been doing incredible contributions. Mm-hmm. There are things that were just not possible because of lack of technology. For example... I will just give you one uh, specific example. Today you obtain credits and you have to contribute 18% of your credits to a buffer pool for the potential reversal of projects if there is fire or if there is illegal logging. Every project has to contribute the same, 18%. I don't know how they came out with this number and I don't think it's fair for every project to contribute the same. Problem is that before we couldn't know the risk profile of a project but today, with historical satellite data and algorithms that can predict the risk based on data of fire, of illegal logging, of the impact of climate change on an ecosystem, we can determine a project-by-project project risk profile. And based on that, make it you know work more like an insurance, as opposed to just a blanket contribution to a buffer.
1: That's awesome. H- how does this change? Do you have to talk to the registries or or who, who needs to give a, a stamp of approval to make this happen?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, in the... You know, there there are all these bodies that create standards and protocols, and they're open to uh updates and reviews. And we are talking to them and, you know, bringing these ideas and bringing the tools, these this data tools to propose updates to these protocols. And they've been very open. And yeah, we hope that, the, you know, the whole industry can move forward, improving these protocols based on this new technology that we have today.
0: I feel bad. I feel like almost we're, we're grilling you, but this is no, just, just so cu- interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm just really curious, yeah.
0: And I love what you're doing. So, what does the progress look like for Pachama? How much um, of the forest in the U.S. have you covered? How many tons of carbon sequestration have you been able to validate, et cetera?
3: Yeah, I mean, there are things I can talk to and there are things I'd rather not do yet because again, Whichever. we're very early. By the way, this week is our first year anniversary.
0: Yay! (laughs) Happy birthday! Congratulations.
3: Thank you. I sent an email to the team today about it. So very early uh, days for us. How big is your team? Um, We are seven right now. And yeah, in terms of impact, we, you know, have over 10 uh, forest projects that we validated, uh, we onboarded, we did our analysis of, you know, historical biomass, current carbon stock. And um, these are projects in the U.S. and in Brazil. In Brazil in the Amazon rainforest conservation projects. And we have a pipeline of a lot of projects from around the world that want to participate in this market. And yeah, right now we are trying to, you know, go step by step. And and again, at the same time, improving our algorithms with better data for, you know, the regions that are outside what we already have validated.
0: I have a question, and we do this a lot in Techstars, is we do weekly report outs on our objectives, our results, and um, then we ask for help. And it just seems like if you've got so many, if you've got a pipeline of so many people looking to enroll their projects with you guys around the world, it sounds like you might need help somewhere. Like, what do you guys need to be able to do that?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, as I said, data. The more data that we input into our models, the better they become in terms of data we need lidar data and we need ground truth mm-hmm. right so these are these are two main components so you know i am I'm moving all my contacts in south america because sometimes that data lives in in the governments sometimes it lives in universities sometimes in companies so we're trying to you know onboard that data into our pipeline so yes if there is a listener that has data of forests around the world talk to us
1: we got some weird listeners i we think maybe
2: someone data. has that data. we have
0: amazing listeners yeah
2: <laughs> someone's someone's got that nasa.gov
1: email i'm sure they have <laughs> the,
2: the data that you need yeah,
1: probably so what do you make of what's happening in brazil with mm-hmm. there's sort of a fight over development versus preservation of the amazon yeah and then also One of the big criticisms I've seen, particularly from the left with regard to forestry projects, is that oftentimes there's indigenous people who don't have land title who live in these forests. And then these like the clean development mechanism projects would get set up and they'd be like, we live here. And they're like, actually, now this is a, you know, UN project and it's very lucrative and you need to leave and also tell no one that you lived here. (laughs) So, like, what are the land politics and also the development politics and what you're seeing? This is a big, big. You yeah, can take as much time no, as you need. I
3: mean, really good questions. It's very complicated. To give an example, there's one project that we are working with that is a very large project. It's the size of a county and is receiving illegal logging. And the illegal loggers are coming with guns. The only way to stop illegal loggers is to send uh, environmental rangers with guns, too. So we're talking about the battlefield, a uh, battlefront. The situation is very complicated. Uh, I am so, from South America, and I know the complexities of countries in which people have the right to improve their conditions of life. And there is a, a big economic pressure on natural resources. The reality is that most people in Brazil, in Colombia, in Peru, in Argentina, want to protect the forest. There, there was a survey recently in Brazil, 97% of people don't want the Amazon to be cut down. Yet. There is this story of uh, development, looking at nature as you know resources to exploit, and that's a narrative that many you know uh, politicians are using in uh, South America, and it's em- em- emboldening the ones who don't care. It's very complicated. So what we like about carbon markets, as uh, in connection to forestry and nature-based solutions is that in a way it puts a price and it it creates an income for the people in these areas that can be an alternative. And hopefully in the future, as the price of carbon goes up, it will be a very meaningful alternative to, you know, clear-cutting the forest for cattle ranching or whatever. In terms of indigenous communities, incredibly important. Indigenous communities are the protectors of the forest. They've been there for tens of thousands of years and uh, they definitely need to be considered, they need to be the project developers. They need to be the people who are benefiting the most of these programs. And unfortunately, in the beginning of you know, Red Plus and other projects, this wasn't considered well enough. And and that was a problem. And there was a pushback from many indigenous communities. And, and there were situations, as you said, in which things were not done correctly. We hope that, again, with more transparency tools, with more... Less middlemen, more tools for empowering those who are in the forest. This, you know, will not happen, uh, or will happen less. So the fact that something was done incorrectly the first time or at the beginning doesn't mean that it won't work, right? So we just need to make it better.
0: You just gotta keep trying and de- use whatever it was that we can learn from the past and engage those people in making the solutions better because. They know better than we do. We're like coming in and they're the ones who struggled with it, the problem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm feeling like a total different mood now from when we started because of everything that you were just talking about with regard to the using up of resources and indigenous people protecting lands and just the total consumption of natural resources. And sometimes, I mean, I say this to the guys all the time. Sometimes I just like need to take a breath mm, and just be yeah. like, okay. What does reversing climate change look like? <laughs> oh my God. Getting everybody to feel empowered and acting because we can't do it alone. Like we just need everybody to either keep sharing the podcast, to pay for carbon removal, to look at your website, to send you guys data. Now I'm just kind of rambling here, but these are the themes that I'm seeing constantly pop up every time we talk about the work that we're doing within climate, within, you know, startups, etc. We have to do this together. Um, And we have to leverage what we used in the past and just be a little bit more optimistic or else we are screwed.
1: Yeah. I read, um, (laughs) have you read uh, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells?
3: I haven't and I won't probably. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I'm going to steal that
0: response every time you ask me about a book.
1: (laughs) That's a very, very good answer and very honest too. Mm. It's a great book and I'm Nori tends to be pretty optimistic and solutions oriented. I think you are too. And then uh, reading that book is like in the movies, and they're like, don't look down. You're like, why? What's down? And you look, you're like, oh, God. <laughs> 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 That's like what I was like, oh, actually, the stakes of what we're doing is they're very high.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think that it was about time for people to wake up mm-hmm. to the reality of this problem. We're talking about the first real global problem, the first. I mean, yeah, we did have the nuclear missile crisis in the 80s, but this is the first problem that has such momentum that cannot be solved by one single country and that puts in danger civilization as we know it. So, yes, we need to wake up to this. You know, we cannot uh, look away from it. That being said, humanity and Mother Earth has faced many other big challenges in the past and we were able to overcome it. So we will now the question is you know what it will cost us because there is a price that we'll have to kind of pay for the credit we've been taking
0: and so the, in my mind is who's is going to pay for that and you mentioned earlier that you reach out you know you've, you've got these projects and you'll reach out to corporates who are already purchasing or procuring offset projects and we're here so let's give some context we're here in oakland because our podcast listeners definitely know where we're at. We're at Verge 19. It's starting tomorrow. We've had multiple little CRNs on that one. Um, They've got a new carbon removal track that they just started this year for their Verge conference. Anyways, and so Green Biz that's hosting this conference is a media group that focuses on sustainability in the private sector. So what is it that we're looking for this week or you're looking for this week in being here at Verge and engaging this group of individuals and organizations?
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that corporations, this is their opportunity to show what they are made of and what they're made for. They're made to benefit society. Climate change is the opportunity for capitalism to really, you know, grow up into its full potential, which is benefiting society at large for the long term. So I agree with you. This solution for this is going to come from everyone. And corporations have to play a very important role of setting their emissions and reducing, of course, their emissions, moving away from fossil fuels, but also offsetting what they cannot reduce in the short term. And in that sense, I think that, you know, the work that we're doing, the work that you guys are doing and many others to improve carbon markets is super important and they should all become our customers. <laughs> basically,
2: You heard it here first on the reversing climate change <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so.
3: I'm curious,
2: but Alessandra, you had, you're like breathing into the (laughs) mic. So you should take your follow up there.
0: I'm sorry. I just, uh, you just served something up for me at Diego. So I'm going to be pitching on stage for the Verge Accelerate pitch competition. And I have a very similar message as to getting the audience, those sustainability managers at these corporations to think beyond just emissions reductions because too little, too late to think that that can solve our problem. And if we need to, if we're going to meet, our UN goals of net zero carbon by 2050 and just prevent complete disaster, we have to emit less and remove the rest. So if they don't have the resources to do it, carbon markets are what allow them to do that in a way that guarantees the carbon removal that they pay for happens and that they can verify that information. So the work that you and uh, Nori and other groups are doing, other groups that we've actually had on CRN too, is super important. And When I say that and I think about pitch, the accelerate pitch, like, oh yeah, all these startups are getting up there and we have to like compete. And I'm so over that. It's like, this is not a competition. Literally, like all of us deserve to win. Like we are all breaking our backs, bootstrapping companies, working on solutions because we know that needs to happen. And I really hope that um, if you, you know, go to the Verge accelerate and there's like a voting like there are a bunch of videos listeners and just support these startups because we need you so much
3: absolutely yes
1: yeah diego has been a you've you've extended your hand in friendship uh more times than you had to Mm. it's good where we try to do the same too it's also just more fun that way
3: absolutely i mean we need more entrepreneurs working on this uh i you know encourage any founder who already did a company and have experience building companies to jump into some solutions to climate change. There is so much to do that we need more, more uh, entrepreneurs working on this.
2: So we didn't get to introduce you up front, but listener for the record, Diego has a picture of himself on his phone, hugging a tree. So he is a certified tree hugger. (laughs) He actually lives in the forest, but also... Pachama recently graduated from Y Combinator and you're a two-time Y Combinator alum. So you like, you sort of know what you're doing when it comes to creating companies, but I'm curious to know the path that led you to where you are now in building up Pachama. And also specifically your experience as an entrepreneur and what you bring as an entrepreneur or fresh injection of new mm-hmm. ideas into the ne- much needed space.
3: Yeah. Thank you. Um, You know my personal story i grew up in argentina in the north in the jungas which is a union between the rainforest and the andes after i finished school i went to barcelona to do a master's degree and then i came to the us to do an internship in new york city and decided to become an entrepreneur since i was a kid i was an environmentalist and i love nature but somehow here, I just needed to be successful, needed to create a company. Needed, I, I bought into the American dream, right? And I started a company in the travel space, which was my passion at the time as well. And I did two companies. In these two companies, I definitely learned a lot through successes, but mostly through failures, crashing and burning several times. Uh, with the second company I did, I got into YC and I moved to California. And I learned a lot. Definitely those guys have founded so many companies that started realizing patterns, common mistakes of founders. And after my last company exited and, you know, it was, you know, under a a very difficult situation, I decided to take some time off. I took a year and a half of sabbatical to really think what I wanted to do next. In this year and a half, I did a lot of soul searching. I went to the Amazon rainforest, spent some time with some native communities there, got incredibly inspired by the power of nature, and also got incredibly shocked by the deforestation that I was seeing on the borders of the Amazon. I came back, I was in New York at the time, and decided to move to California, but not to San Francisco, to the forest. And I got a house here in the Santa Cruz Mountains, And from there, from a little deck that I have among the Redwoods, I started thinking ideas for my next startup. Uh, read a lot of books and yeah, ended up realizing that all the things, all the techniques, all the playbooks that Silicon Valley has developed to scale up technologies and solutions that can go uh, in a few years from just a few, you know, black cars in San Francisco to Uber, the same techniques can be used to solve climate change. And that was my intention on on bringing those experiences as a founder to this world. Great. I love that response.
2: And that sort of cues up a follow-up we were talking before about kind of the the scarcity mindset that has Mm -hmm. existed, particularly around climate change, too. You get like Mm. these weird fiefdoms of schools of thought, and you must think one way and sort of Mm. shame, shame, shame on you if you don't. Mm. And then also within carbon markets, traditionally, at least we found a lot of friction or resistance Mm. to new ideas that might reduce transaction costs and create more transparency and part of the motivation for Nori, which by the way, Pachama, we're excited to work with you when we're ready. For sure. We're yes. not there yet, but like, yep. I, I mean, if it weren't obvious to the listener, it's pretty obvious to us here. Like, yeah, <laughs> uh, a partnership we, we help people get paid <laughs> who remove carbon and we need to work with data platforms and you're, you've built a really good one. However, I do think there is a scarcity mindset as opposed to the abundance mindset, which is like, hey, humans, like here we are just trying to figure out this planet so we don't screw it up for the next generations and generations beyond that. But how have you seen that mindset play out in your work?
3: Yeah, I mean, we were talking before the podcast uh, started about uh, this quote from Einstein I like a lot that might or might not be from Einstein. We, don't, we never know today on the internet. <laughs> but that the consciousness that created a problem is not going to be the same consciousness that will solve the problem. So the consciousness that created this problem is a consciousness of scarcity, which is ingrained on the type of capitalism that is hopefully fading away. The consciousness that is going to get us out of this problem is a consciousness of abundance. Is a consciousness of we are all interconnected, and we all have to build together using the human hive mind. Uh, the solutions that are multifaceted, and that takes a lot of different experimentation to actually solve it at scale and on time.
0: What you said earlier was really interesting. Talking about corporations, you said that they're here to build things that benefit society or the human race, and. I thought, yeah, I would I would love that to be the truth. And I think that's more with an abundance mindset. And unfortunately, we've seen mostly the scarcity set in, which rolls out as, you know, we have to increase profits um, for the investors, for certain subset of people. And there's nothing wrong with getting rich. I don't believe that. It's just a matter of like, at what cost? So are we going to be considering the total impact? Are we going to be looking at how do we totally... Redesign our business model to go from linear to circular and regenerative. So not even circular, but just regenerative, working with other partners and working within your supply chain and your distributors and saying, okay, like, how can, like, what are the problems that you face? How can we make that better? And then looking at the whole overall impact of the products or services that they're providing? That's true abundance. And I love that you mentioned it when you came in, like, Oh, it's all about abundance and scarcity. And that's the problem that or the issue that we're facing right now with climate change. And it even goes down to like an individual level. Myself, we talked about the pitch stage and competing, like no abundance, everybody gets to win. And then everybody gets a chance to feel valued and involved because that's the world that we live in. And we should, there's an infinite amount of love and beauty in the world. And just because someone is doing well over here does not mean that you aren't doing well. Unfortunately, I feel like that sets in with a lot of companies.
3: Yeah. And in fact, I think that this is a beautiful opportunity for all humanity to come together, inspired by one mission, Mm -hmm. uh, and for each person to contribute their gifts, whether your gift is storytelling, building technology, rallying people, you know, changing the ways that things are done. Everyone has something to contribute on again solving one of the biggest challenges of our generation that can also bring us to a utopia really i think that you know what bike minister fuller used to say that we are in front of oblivion or utopia that's a reality of our generation i think and i think it's inspiring too to think that we can all work together for that
1: yeah uh you love earth and human hands david grinspoon that's right yeah uh, we we love. Them. I mean, it's m- maybe my personal favorite episode. Why can would I you say that Can air? I say that? Maybe I'll cut it. <laughs> I want to just hear, like, why did that book make such an impression? A lot of what you're saying about this being a make or break moment for humanity sounds Grin to me. Yeah, like what's what's the connection there? Grin
3: Yeah, I mean yeah, that that name. book was definitely part of the inspiration for for this company. I loved his big picture, a view of humanity as, you know, just one of the many species that changed Earth, right? Before the bacteria did it, the plants did it, and in looking at the Earth from this, you know, very high-level viewpoint. And I also loved his optimism, you know, because I deeply believe that humans are awesome and that we have the ability to be the stewards, the rangers of planet Earth. So yeah, that book was su- super inspiring. I also, I'm a big fan of, of course, Carl Sagan, Lynn Margolis oh, yeah. and all the James Lovelock and all the awesome people he quotes a lot in that book.
1: Yeah. I, I wish that was more present in the environmental space. Cause I also find it very inspiring. Basically what it usually boils down to for me, and if you've listened to that Grinspoon episode, we go through this at length, but in astronomy, people talk about great filter events mm-hmm. and this is. This is where intelligent life emerges on a planet and they get to a point where something happens and kills them off. So like one of the great filters that's proposed is what if life never developed at all on Mm -hmm. a planet, even if the conditions are right. Or what if you had prokaryotic life that never turns into eukaryotic life? That, that, mm. that The chances of that happening were already crazy small. It, right. It, and then like you have these, like what happens when you get to a point where a humanity or an intelligent species develops the technology to transform the planet, but not the institutions to govern the technology in a productive way? Right. How many civilizations across the universe have gotten to where we are right now and have killed themselves before they figured it out? Right. That,
0: Isn't that crazy? I yeah. I think about that all the time.
1: Yeah, like what what do we do with that? I don't know.
0: And there's another book we, you know, Ross, as you can tell listeners, is super intellectual and reads all these books. And I'm like a little bit more, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> don't
1: sell yourself short.
0: I, I don't know what I'm going to say, but I'm a little different. And uh, I love Eckhart Tolle. We talked about this, I think, when Eric Kornacki was on the podcast and in his book, The New Earth Awakening. Did you read that mm, one? Yeah, I love it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, when he opens that book in chapter one or the introduction, I don't even remember. It doesn't matter. But he talks about evolution in this way. Mm. Does Maybe not eukaryotic or prokaryotic uh, breakdowns, but like imagine that there was all this vegetation and then there was a flower. Like, there had to be a first flower. How long did it bloom? 20 seconds. And the next one came. Maybe was it a minute? And then it evolves. And it's all because of some type of pressure constraints that led to that evolution. Same thing with, like, water, living animals. Okay, well, then it must have been living in a section of water that was cut off from the rest of the ocean and then slowly receded over thousands of years, so then developed lungs, then developed feet, and, like, went on land slowly, slowly, slowly. And he mentions, now I'm talking, I'm going long, but I really love this. And it's to this point of scarcity and abundance and like what really needs to happen in order to change. I don't think it's just technology. I think it's technology change driven by a change of like just awareness and consciousness. So this is the constraint that we're in. This is the pressure point that we're in. We have to do something now. And I think it's what's going to cause a change in how do we think about interacting with each other and society as a whole to just another level of awareness, consciousness, and, um, I don't know, care.
3: Yeah, I love it. And I think that he talks a lot in that book about the ego. I mean, that's the problem. Mm. Uh, that We've been, you know, just running around trying to, again, scarcity mindset, you know, protect our own selves without realizing that we're all deeply interconnected, all human beings and with all forms of life. So I think that is a big consciousness shift that is happening. I see it happening. Hasn't arrived to Bolsonaro and to Trump yet, but it's gonna arrive.
0: But it's totally happening because we're talking about it, and yeah. like you're probably the third or fourth person I know that's, you know, mentioned that I've been able to talk about Eckhart Tolle. And it, <laughs> it helps when Oprah is such a big fan and just continuously <laughs> <laughs> and
1: she's evangelizing
0: pushes Eckhart Tolle for over a decade now. But yeah, I think I think it is happening.
2: Welcome to the Bay, Alessandra. These are, these are the sorts of conversations.
0: This is why I love being here. So Paul, our CEO, he doesn't really love it. And I'm like, send me, we got to go to San Francisco. I'm going, I'm going. Like, what, what do you need? I, I, if it's just for an hour, I'll go. I miss it.
2: All right. Well, we're getting to the top of the hour and I've quite enjoyed this podcast, but if the listeners want to get more engaged with Pachama or connect with you or learn more, what can they do?
3: Yeah. Pachama.com uh, is our website on Twitter, Pachama Inc. And If you email info at Pachama, I get this email and almost everyone on the team, I think. And yes, we are going to be looking to expand our team with talented, passionate people that wants to work on this mission. If you are a forest owner that wants to participate in this market, we might not be quite ready yet, but come to us. If you are a company that wants to offset your emissions with forest carbon, come talk to us. If you have data about forest, come talk to us. And yeah, those are the places to find us.
1: If you're listening and you're looking for a job in carbon removal or carbon removal adjacent companies, you should look at Pachama. Also, I charge a very modest finder's fee, two points under average, I charge 8% of <laughs> your yearly <Okay>. salary. <laughs> No, uh, Diego, thanks for for being here. And I'm so glad our paths have been intersecting so much. We're looking forward to finding ways that we can work together on stuff in the future. I'm pretty sure we're going to find it.
3: Absolutely. Yes. Rooting for you guys big time. So excited to see you guys on Techstars and looking forward to see uh, what keeps coming from you guys and definitely we'll uh, find ways to collaborate.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for coming.
1: Yeah. Do you want to take us out and tell people to to rate and review us?
0: Oh, yeah. If you like what you hear and you're not too annoyed, uh, please support us. Rate and review this podcast. um, Say something nice. And um, we really appreciate your support.
1: Thank you. Goodbye now.